Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to take your copies of the scriptures this morning open to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Exodus 2, in a moment, we'll read verses 11 through 22. We've been talking about Christ as our treasure this morning. As we've been singing those songs, I'm reminded that God's Word is also a great gift, a great treasure to us. When you read God's Word, you read it as a gift that has been given to you. This is something that you treasure. You see that God's Word is actually God's grace to you, giving you what you have not earned, but you do not deserve. But God, His great plan, His great desire, reveal Himself to us through His Word. We know that God exists. We can see that in the world around us. It's what theologians call general revelation. Nature cannot tell us everything we need to know about God. We need God's Word to instruct us. That God has given us, in His Word, everything that pertains to life and godliness. What is it that you need for life? What is it that you need for godliness? You don't need to look anywhere else. You can find it here in God's Word, in God's revelation of Himself and who He is. May the Lord forgive us of the times. We think that life or godliness can be found apart from God's Word. There's nowhere else to go. So where else would we want to go today and do His Word? Would you stand with me as we read Exodus 2, verses 11 through 22. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When, Moses, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water the father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, 
I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We return again this morning to the early life of Moses. We've been with him now through the first few months and even the first few years of his life. Most likely, still a young child when he is weaned, age of three or four. And notice that Moses has become the focus of the text. As we've gone through chapter 1, come to chapter 2, chapter 2 now has been all about Moses. Everything has been about Moses. He is the focus. It's about his life, and all of the events are centered around him, at least here in the beginning of this book. And so we left Moses being named by Pharaoh's daughter. And there Pharaoh grew up in the house, or there Moses, excuse me, grew up in the house of Pharaoh. We do not know much about Moses' life being raised there. We know that he was educated as an Egyptian. But we don't know many of the details. There he was in that house of royalty. And many could speculate a lot about what took place in Moses in those formative years of his life. But we just don't know all the details. Yet I think it is safe to say... something important about Moses' life. Moses' life was directed by God. In fact, you notice something, as we read last week, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and now we've read verses 11 through 22. Do you notice something in these verses so far in this chapter? There is no mention specifically of God. He is not mentioned. He is not there. Where is God in the early life of Moses? Where is God when he is born? Where is God when Moses' life is threatened? Where is God when Pharaoh's daughter draws him out of the Nile River? And in our text this morning, as we just read, where is God? Maybe it's accurate to answer that question like, A children's catechism that says God is everywhere. Yes, God is everywhere and that he is omnipresent, but he is also everywhere in this text. We read these real life accounts and events of what takes place in the life of Moses and we are left with a sense that this has not all happened by accident. It wasn't chance that's watching over Moses. He wasn't just one lucky guy. No, this was God's all-providential path for the life of Moses. This was the path that God had specifically designed for him. This is the one who would be God's deliverer, the one who would save Israel. And even though these verses do not explicitly mention God, he is everywhere, orchestrating every detail, sovereignly ordaining all that is taking place, and bringing his perfect plan to pass in his way, in his time, and all of it ultimately for his own glory. Have you ever thought in your life, where is God? Have you ever wrestled with circumstances in your life? Are you ever left wondering, why is all of this happening? Have you ever considered that it's all a part of God's plan for your life? 
that it's God who is working in you. It's God working how He wants to work. Have you ever considered that you are on God's providential path? This does not mean that you have all of the answers. It does not mean that you know exactly why everything is happening to you just the way that it is. When we look at Moses' life, in fact, we have no explicit mention that he understands every last detail that is going on with him at that moment. He could see it later as he reflected on it, as he wrote it down, as God revealed it to him by divine inspiration, but there's no mention that he was able to connect all of the dots in real time. Yet everything was done according to the sovereignty and providence of God. Have you ever considered the working of God in your own life, even when you're asking, where is God? Would you be willing to see that he is orchestrating your life for a particular purpose and for a particular reason? What is happening to you is not happening by accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not because you're lucky or unlucky. It's not fate. It's planned by the divine mind of God and executed by his divine hand. Executed by his powerful hand. Take heart, dear brother and sister. Take heart. God is active. God is working. God is there even when we can't see him, even when it appears that he might be distant, even when it looks like everything has been messed up and not going the way that we thought it should go. We take heart in verses like these from Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Thank God. I've planned my way many a time. Thought that I knew what was best. Thought that I knew what God wanted. Thought that I knew where God would take me, when he would take me there. Yet how faithful has God shown himself to be to establish the steps. Steps that I would not have taken on my own. Steps that I would not have even thought of taking on my own. Moses' life, as we are reading it here in chapter 2, is a life that foretells the life of Israel. So what we see happen in Moses' life, we're going to see happen again in the life of Israel. So if this is what God has ordained for the life of Moses, it's also what God has ordained for the life of Israel. And even more, it's what will happen again to the true Israel, Jesus Christ. His life was the one of the deliverer. Just as Moses is a deliverer, a human agent of deliverance who was to direct the people of God out of Egypt. And as a human deliverer, he was used by the ultimate deliverer, God. And so there is much that we can learn from these events that happen in his life that point us all to the final deliverer. Think about it here, that Moses is this human agent, this human deliverer who is used by the divine deliverer, God himself. But there is one who was to come who was what? 100% man and 100% God. The deliverer has come, the final deliverer that we look to. So how does Moses point us to Christ and how does him pointing us to Christ through his life instruct us and teach us this morning? Well, number one, you can follow along here in your bulletin if that's helpful. Moses was a deliverer who willingly bore the reproach of Christ. Moses was a deliverer who willingly bore the reproach of Christ. In just a few words, we are taken from a small child to a grown man. So verse 10, here is this child that's been weaned, who now has been named by Pharaoh's daughter. And now we jump to verse 11, and one day when Moses has grown up, in fact, if we go to Acts 7, 23 there, Stephen says, 
When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So from a few years old in verse 10 to now 40 years old in verse 11. And here is this 40-year-old man, grown up in the house of Pharaoh, associated with the finest things life could afford in those days. Here is this Hebrew man who has not known the oppression of the Egyptians. He has not known the suffering of his people. He did not know the groaning that they were experiencing day by day, month by month, year after long year, decade after grueling decade. All that Moses had known was advantage and status and position as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about Think about what's implicit here in this statement. Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What was happening to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people, during those 40 years? Suffering and pain and hardship and persecution. Difficulties and trials and oppression for 40 years. Yet God was working. God had a plan. Could you be patient through that? Yet here, at the right time and in the right way, again, by God's divine providence, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Something happened in Moses. We don't know all the details, but Moses knew he was different. He knew that he didn't belong in the royal palace. He knew that all of the opulence of the life he experienced was not his by birthright. There was something that God did in his heart, put into his mind to visit his people. And so it says there in Exodus 2.11, it says, he went out. Do you see that? It says he went out. That, those are important words, brothers and sisters. Those are important words because those are the words that are used time and time and time again of the people of Israel going out of Egypt. It's how Israel exited left Egypt. They went out. And so now here it is, Moses, who went out. I believe that it's used here for a reason. This is Moses's exodus. It's his going out. It is his leaving Egypt. He is turning his back on all that was afforded to him in the house of Pharaoh. There was something in him, a change wrought about in his heart by God where he had to go out to his people. And notice those words. He went out to his people. Literally, it says, to his brothers. What did Moses see when he looked out over those Israelites? He saw his family. He saw his brothers and his sisters. He saw his kinsmen, those to whom he was so connected to and unified with that nothing could break that bond. And what did he look upon? It says there, Moses looked upon their burdens, didn't he? Those same heavy burdens that were mentioned in 1.11, Pharaoh had placed upon the people Now Moses is there looking upon those burdens, but he's not looking upon their affliction and oppression in a favorable way. He sees the harm, the destruction that these burdens are causing his people. And he has compassion upon them. He has love for them, doesn't he? And notice, Moses doesn't just feel compassion He has compassion, and so he does something about it. He sees their afflictions, and there's this understanding the burdens need to be released. They need to be removed. These burdens that have been placed upon the Hebrews' backs need to fall off and never return. like the burdens that fall off the back of Christian in that 
story, Pilgrim's Progress. She goes through the wicket gate. You have burdens upon yourself that need to fall off. The burdens of sin, burdens of guilt. These are the burdens that Christ can remove from your life. When you put your faith and trust in Him, these are the burdens that can fall off of your back. Jesus doesn't just feel compassion for us. He does something to relieve us of our burdens. In fact, He takes our burdens upon Himself, doesn't He? Carries our burdens. Is crucified for our burdens, bearing our sin and our shame. And so Moses here now comes out of Egypt. He comes out of Pharaoh's house. He comes to identify with his people, his kinsmen, his brothers. He comes out so that the oppression, the cruelty, the hardships would be done away with so that they would be no more. Why did Moses do this? Why did Moses come out? He did it because he had faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He had faith that was forward-looking. It was a faith in the coming Christ, faith in the coming Messiah, faith in the final deliverer. But such an exodus of God's deliverer was not without its consequences. To help us understand what Moses went through in going out of Pharaoh's house and identifying with his people, look with me for a moment at Hebrews 11. Turn with me. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, he was, for he was looking to the reward. Do you hear what Moses did in these verses? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be associated with Pharaoh's house. He refused to be identified as an Egyptian, and rather, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Do you hear those words? He chose to be mistreated. Who does that? Who in their right mind makes that kind of choice? Hmm, Let's see now, I have two choices. I could stay in the lavish house of Pharaoh, or I could be mistreated with the rest of the slaves. Choose this day which you would go. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? We might even baptize which way that we would choose. Well, you know, I think it's God's will for me to stay in Pharaoh's house. You know, there is some good I can do in Pharaoh's house if I just stay there. There are people in Pharaoh's house that need to be evangelized. And so maybe I should just stay in Pharaoh's house and evangelize those people. And that would be what God wants me to do. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's what entices us in this world. There are pleasures that come from sin in this world that can be enjoyed. But notice what they are called. They are called fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin can be pleasurable, but that does not make it right. Our world tells us if it feels good, do it. Sin can be pleasurable, but it is not a pleasure that lasts. Don't get me wrong. Sin promises lasting pleasure. Sin promises and says, oh, this is going to be great. You'll love this. This will feel amazing. 
Sin promises to fill you up. Sin promises to satisfy you and quench your deepest longings and desires, but it lies. The pleasures of sin are fleeting. They are here one moment and they are gone the next. Do not be deceived by the temporary nature of the pleasures of sin that only put one on the path of destruction. Rather, listen to Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures. What's the last word? You know it? At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Never-ending pleasures with God. Fleeting pleasure with sin with God. Pleasures forever. What do you want? You want pleasures that are here today and gone the next? Pleasures that you have to go back to time and time and time again? I want these kind of pleasures that last forever and they only come from the hand of God. How is it that you could leave and forsake the enticing call of the pleasures of sin? You hear the call of that. You hear the call of sin in our world. It all comes down to what you value. What is it that you consider most valuable? Listen to Hebrews 11 again. Moses saw that the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than all the treasures that Egypt could afford. Moses would rather experience the reproach of Christ. He would rather share in the reproach of Christ. Think about that. Disgrace, abuse, dishonor, disrepute, contempt, scorn, shame. Give me all of those if that's what comes with Christ. That's what Moses said. I will take all of those upon myself because I want Christ more than whatever it is that Egypt has to give. I treasure the reproach of Christ. I value above everything else this reproach of Christ than anything that the world could ever give me. Moses would have rather suffered like Christ on behalf of the people of God rather than have all the treasures that Egypt would give him. And this is what happens when you exit Egypt. This is what happens when you exit the world. You no longer love the world or the things of the world because you come to see that the things of the world are passing away. They're coming to an end. They are not going to last. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Would you consider the reproach of Christ of more value than all of the money in the world. Would you do what Peter and John did, who after they had been arrested, put on trial, beaten, would you rejoice that you were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? Why could Moses consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt? Because he was looking for the reward. He was looking forward to the same reward that Abraham looked forward to in Hebrews 10, 11, that says, Moses, that says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What's the reward? 
that you are looking forward to, dear brother and sister. The reward is dwelling with God. But even more than that, when you are dwelling with God, your reward is God. Moses endured the reproach of Christ because he believed that in the end, he would get God. And so, dear brother and sister, let us willingly, earnestly lose our lives for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Let us not despair of bearing the reproach of Christ as if something strange were happening to us. That if, as if we deserved something better. As if we were called to more excellent things. No, dear brother and sister, it's time that we reevaluate what we value, what we truly treasure. Have we truly come out of this world? Have we truly come out of Egypt? Our lives, our loves, and our desires will then be completely distinct and different than the world. And so would we bear the reproach of Christ, willingly welcome it, Number two, Moses was a deliverer who went through rejection like Christ. Moses was a deliverer who went through rejection like Christ. Come back to Moses in Exodus 2, who sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and it says he looked here and he looked there and he saw no one. And so he struck down the Egyptian, killed him, and hid him in the sand. What's going on in these verses? Now, it could be very likely that Moses looked around to see if there were any eyewitnesses to catch him in the act. It appears that he wants to conceal his actions, keep this under wraps. He's fearful when, when Pharaoh finds out what he's done. So he hides the dead body in the sand. He's afraid when his actions found out by Pharaoh. It does look like Moses would like to conceal what he is doing. I think there's also another reason why Moses looks here and there, and then it says he sees no one, or literally it says he sees no man. Some people think that Moses was being timid here, wanting someone else to step in and resolve the problem, but if we go to another passage, go to Isaiah 59 for a second. Isaiah 59 uses this exact same phrase. Isaiah 59, verses 15 and The end of verse 15, I'll start with the Lord. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw, now here's the same phrase, that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So I think it's interesting here, we have these two reasons why... Moses is doing what he is doing. I think one is, yes, he does want to conceal what he is doing. He wants to keep it hidden. He doesn't want anyone to know. But I also think it could be that when he's looking around and he sees no man, there's no one to give justice. There's no one to step in. Just as God there in Isaiah 59 was looking for a man to step in and provide justice, but there was no one, and so God does it himself. And so here Moses looking around and seeing no man could be that he saw no one who would provide justice. No one who would save. No one who would step in. And no doubt, he killed the Egyptian. It says, he struck him down. It's interesting. The same idea is used later in Exodus 12, 12, when it says that God will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So Moses struck down this Egyptian, Exodus 12, 12, God says, 
he will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. What are we to make of Moses' action? Was it right? Was it wrong? Before we jump on the bandwagon to completely condemn Moses, let us call again upon God's word to help us understand. Listen to Acts 7, 23 through 24. Acts 27, 23 through 24. This is Stephen's sermon. He's preaching in Acts 7. He says this in verses 23 and 24. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So what does God's word say about what Moses did? It would seem here that God is saying he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And I think if we take what Stephen says in Acts 7, if we take also what it says of God doing of the firstborn in Egypt in Exodus 12, 12, do not think it's a stretch to say that Moses striking down the Egyptian is divine justice. Whether Moses understands this at the time, the text does not say, but it does look forward to another time when many Egyptians would be struck down once more, but this time by God himself. The next day, however, Moses encounters another struggle, this one between his own people. He rebukes the man in the wrong, saying, why do you strike your companion or why do you strike your neighbor? Interesting that many of the laws that come out of Exodus and later on in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, deal with how to love your neighbor. Here is this one striking his neighbor, his companion, And Moses steps in. Again, going back to Stephen in Acts 7, 25, says this about Moses. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Instead of understanding, they questioned Moses as the, as the deliverer that God would use. And so this question that they posed to him really is a rejection this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Stephen says about Moses, This man God sent to be both ruler and redeemer. This is what God's people had done in Israel. It's what they had done time and time and time again. They reject the one that God sends. That's what Stephen was saying. He's saying, You rejected Moses. You can think about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8 with Saul. Why did Samuel make Saul king? There in 8, 7, the Lord says to Samuel, go and make Saul king. And it's not you that they have rejected, it's me. They've rejected me, Samuel. That's why you should make Saul king. God would send send prophets and kings and judges to his people time and time and time again and the people would continue to reject them time and time and time again all leading up to the greatest rejection when God would send his own son Jesus Christ and what happened to him he was rejected wasn't he listen to what it says Isaiah 53 3 he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief it says this in John 1 10 and 11 he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Or Mark 12, 10 through 11, Jesus says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What do you expect in the deliverer that comes. He will be rejected by his own people. And so we know that there are those who will reject and refuse and will never accept. And the world still rejects Christ. They reject Christ, and in rejecting Christ, they reject God. That is our world. That's the biggest problem in our world today. If I were to ask you, what's the biggest problem in our world? It's not COVID. It's not any government. 
It's not big tech. The biggest problem in our world today is that people reject Christ. And there's only two options here. It's either you receive Christ or you reject Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. Either you've received him or you reject him. And that will all that that's the only thing that will matter in the end. Have you received Christ or have you rejected Christ? When Christ returns, when he comes again, that will be the dividing line. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ or have you rejected Christ? And if that is the biggest problem, dear brothers and sisters, in our world, it should give us that much more desire to go out and say, do not reject Christ, receive him, put your faith and trust in him, because it's all that matters. You worried about problems, problems that you have in your life, problems of things that are going on in this world, when was the last time that you worried that Christ is being rejected? When was it that you could not sleep because Christ was being rejected by people in this world? Have you ever lost a minute of sleep over that? How foolish we are. How distracted we become. When we become indifferent to the rejection of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, if you preach Christ, if you tell other people that they must receive Christ, that it's only faith in Him, it's only a repenting of your sin and trusting in Him, that that's the only way to God, guess what? You will be rejected. You will be rejected in this world. You will not be accepted. Would you rather the world accept you or would you rather be rejected by the world and have Christ. And how will you respond when you are rejected? Will you be dejected? Despair? Downcast? Or will you consider yourself blessed? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Finally, number three, Moses was a deliverer whose rescue is fulfilled in Christ. Moses was a deliverer whose rescue is fulfilled in Christ. And Moses finds out from his kinsmen that what he did in killing that Egyptian is known. The word spreads, and the word spreads to Pharaoh, who then seeks to kill Moses. Moses flees. He fled from Egypt, just like the Israelites would do in Exodus 14.5. They fled. Moses fled Egypt. Where did Moses go? Out of the reach of Pharaoh, he went into the wilderness, to the land of Midian there, most likely somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula. And having exited Egypt, here is Moses in the wilderness, and he does something interesting. It says he sits down by a well. Remember, we cannot understand Exodus without understanding also Genesis. In Genesis, we have a few accounts that all center around a well. Remember, Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And where does the success of his journey begin? It begins at a well. That's where he finds the wife. 
And that's Genesis 24, if you want to read that later this afternoon. Then Genesis 29, here we read about Jacob at a well, and there he meets the shepherdess Rachel, whom he would later marry there at that well. So here are two examples of men come to wells, they draw water, there's drawing of water that happens at these wells, and then there is a result in marriage that happens. What should we expect when we read Moses? Here now, sitting down at a well. Ah, we've read this before, haven't we? We know what's going to happen. So here, Moses sitting by the well. Priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But there were shepherds who came and drove them away. But then what happens? Beautiful picture. Moses stood up. He came to the rescue. He saved them. And then he watered their flock for them. If there was a question before, who made you a prince and a judge over us, Moses? If there was a question of, are you really a deliverer? Has God really chosen you? Here we come now to this next section as Moses is in the wilderness and there's a confirmation. Yes, he stands up. He saves these daughters from these shepherds. He draws the water from the well. He waters the flock. There is no question. There is some confirmation. He is a deliverer. He is a rescuer, even as he rescues these seven women. And so what happens? After Moses does this, the seven daughters, they return home to their father, Reuel, which means friend of God. Later, he is known as Jethro in Exodus. He has two different names. And he wants to know, how is it you've come home so soon? Usually it takes you a long time to water the flocks. It makes us also think that this encounter with the shepherds is a regular occurrence. <laughs> They're often driving them away. How is it you've come home so soon today? And listen to their testimony. Listen to their testimony. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water. That word in the, in the Hebrew is double, so it's, there's emphasis on it. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. An astounding witness that they gave to the rescue accomplished by Moses. Astounding why? Because look at what they call him. They call him an Egyptian. This is how they identify him. Even though he had left that identity behind, there is a statement here where Moses, they saw him as an Egyptian. And I think there is great irony that's taking place when this is written down by Moses. What's the irony? It demonstrates that God uses reversals to bring about his redemptive plan. God uses reversals to bring about his redemptive plan. Well, why would I say that? I would say that because we shortly see the very opposite of what these women testify to. They say this, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. What was it about to be? It was about to be a shepherd who would deliver the people out of the hands of of the Egyptians would soon be the shepherd Moses whom God would use to rescue his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. It's precisely what Jethro recognizes later in Exodus 18.10 when he says this, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Look, dear brothers and sisters, at the amazing work of redemption that God is going to accomplish in the most unlikely of ways. Oh, this is the wisdom of God's plan that looks like foolishness to the world. This is the power of God's plan that looks so weak and frail to the world. And Moses then becomes the husband of Zipporah. She gives birth to a son named Gershom, and Moses recognizes that he is a sojourner in a foreign land. He is not home yet. Egypt is not his home. The wilderness is not his home. There is another land that's been promised by God, a home where they would dwell with God. But what Moses does here becomes a pattern of how Moses would lead the people out of Israel. He would lead them through the Red Sea, 
into the wilderness. And what would happen when they came to the wilderness? He would provide water for them, wouldn't he? Water from the rock. Moses' life points to the redemption that Israel will experience in the future. And so how does this account of what's going on with Moses and these daughters and ultimately Zipporah, his wife, how does Moses rescuing, watering, and finally marrying find its fulfillment in Christ? Well, maybe it would be easy to take a beeline to the cross, but I want to take us to John 4. So if you have your Bibles there, open John 4, these last few moments. Our God is the God of providence. Everything he's written, he's risen for a reason. So what do we read in John 4? If everything that I've been saying about the well in Genesis 24 with Rebecca, the well in Genesis 29 with Jacob and Rachel, the well in Exodus 2 with Moses and then finally him marrying Zipporah, what do you expect when you read John 4? The question is, do we have eyes and ears to hear? Let me read. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Anything yet? Nothing? Let's continue. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, come here. The woman said, answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have five, had, had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Anything yet? What's going on? As we come to John 4, we know what our Bible says. We should be screaming out in utter horror. No, Jesus, not you. Don't do it. Don't sit by the well. Don't let that woman come there. Don't let her talk to you. Don't marry someone like that. Who is she? She's no one. She's nothing. She's a Samaritan. She's a half-breed. 
She's had five husbands, and the sixth man that she is with is not even her husband. Jesus, don't do it. Don't drink water at this well with this woman. Don't do it. Is that what you're thinking? Because I think that's what God's word is saying. And what does Jesus say? Here is the water, the living water that you need. I'm going to water you. I'm going to give you this water. And this water is going to be in you, a spring of water that will well up to eternal life. This is the water that you need. This is the water that you will drink, that will quench your thirst, and you will never be thirsty again. This is the water that we all need. This is the water that we've tasted of if we are Christians. This is the water that you need if you're not a Christian. What does it mean? It means we have to see that we are the woman. We are the one who was unworthy. We are the one who did not deserve to be married. We have been promiscuous. We have been sinful. We were like the Samaritan woman. How could a Samaritan woman be saved? The problem is, we don't think that we're the Samaritan woman. The problem is, we think that we deserve something. I deserve the water. I deserve Christ to be my husband. I don't deserve that. It's God's grace to me. It's God's grace that you would give me that water. It's, it's God's grace that I would be married to Jesus Christ. It's God's grace that that kind of union is able to take place. And how does it all happen? It happens through Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for the times when we would forget. We would deny even that we needed Christ to draw the water for us. Forgive us for the times that we think that we deserved it. Forgive us for the times we've been prideful. Forgive us for the times we've thought only about ourselves. Here is Christ. And so let us look to Him. Let us be those who have received this living water Let us be those who see that we were unworthy to be married to Christ We were like that woman despised no one nothing promiscuous, in the gutter, and yet Christ came to us, washed us, cleansed us, and gave us faith and repentance, and made us whole. So that we could say, the hour is coming and is now here 
when true worshipers will worship the, will worship the Father in the spirit and truth. I thank you for Christ that he's brought us into the family of God and bought us with his own blood so that now we can worship you, O oh God. And now we can say we would willingly bear the reproach of Christ. And we would willingly be rejected with Christ because Christ is our greatest treasure. We pray this all in his name. Amen.